0: Ooh, sorry. Um, that said, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8 this morning. Daniel chapter 8. Last week, because of communion, I didn't go through the whole chapter, which is good because you know, sometimes uh, it's like trying to eat an old, a whole elephant. You got to eat it one bite at a time. Um, maybe that's a bad analogy. None of us eat elephant, but you, know, you get the idea. A big meal sometimes these chapters are, and sometimes we need to just take some pieces. But what I want to remind you of is last week in Daniel chapter 8, we went from verse 1 through 8, and what we found out is that Daniel is revealing a vision that the Lord gave to him about a ram, a wild ram, and a he-goat, which is a domesticated animal. And they have this interaction, and they are fighting one another for prominence, and for uh, position as the world leader. And these ferocious animals, what we find out is that they're doing their own will, and they are the kingdoms of man. That's what man's kingdoms does. It, it always tries to do its own will. And at the same time, what we found out last week is that these kingdoms, while they're doing their own will, and while they're fighting amongst themselves, God is using these ungodly leaders who are uh, Trying to get power and authority in this world. They're trying to use these, God's using these leaders to actually build up and provide a way for his message of salvation and redemption to be brought into the world. He's using the, the Grecian kingdom to basically all get on the same playing field. They end up using the Greek language over the long haul, and then he'll ultimately use the Roman kingdom to build these Roman roads that will make it possible for you to travel within a few days to the next country over and to share this gospel message that we'll get in the New Testament. And so God is allowing these kingdoms, these ungodly kingdoms, to have authority and power, and actually even, we find out, to trample his own nation and to have authority and rulership over Israel. And in the long run, what we find out is that he comes back and and he sets up his throne there. And so, in Daniel chapter 8, so far, we read the first eight verses, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read over them uh, to kind of transition into this week's passage. So, it says there in chapter 8, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, and just in case there's any question, he writes to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high. So remember with me, he gets this vision, and this vision seems to have a location attached to it. And this location is 200 miles south of Babylon. So Daniel's in Babylon. He's getting this vision. He's serving the king there. God gives him a vision of this next kingdom that's going to come up after Babylon, because Belshazzar is about to have the writing on the wall that says, you've been weighed in the balances, you've been found wanting. And what God's telling him is there's going to be another kingdom after this, and he takes him to the city that will ultimately be the the capital city of this next kingdom. So that's pretty cool. He's not only telling him things, but he's showing him this is where the headquarters is going to be for this new nation. He says he was by the river, and then he lifted his eyes and saw this ram. And this ram had two horns, and they were both high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand them. So as He sees this ram with the horns pushing up. What we find is that these horns grew at a different rate, and we know this to be the Medo-Persian empire. One started, and then the other one took over. The Persians uh, took over that kingdom with the ultimate authority. So verse 4 says, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him. And there was nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. So this kingdom grows, and it grows in these specific directions because it came from the east. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had notable horn, a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. This ram that could not be taken down in any possible way by any of its matches, this goat comes from a long distance and travels very quickly and is full of rage and not only destroys him, casts him down and then tramples on top of him as if to say, hey, not only are you destroyed, but I'm going to kick you while you're down and show everyone that I'm above you now. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So this kingdom that was untouchable has been destroyed. And I think it's interesting This ram is kind of what we would see in the wild, and it's destroyed by a goat, which is commonly known as a domesticated animal. So this goat that destroys this wild ram isn't supposed to be stronger than a ram. It's supposed to be weaker. It's supposed to be more subservient, and yet it comes in with this rage and destroys it. And that tells me that the kingdoms of man are placed in position by God, and they're also taken down by God. And he can use anybody to destroy a kingdom if he wants to. If God wants to stop a kingdom from existing, he will. And he'll use anyone and anything to do so. Nothing can be stopped by God can't be stopped by man. Therefore, verse eight says, The male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the Lord the large horn was broken, And in place of it were four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of the transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this, and he prospered. So what's going on here? There's this vision of these two animals that fight, and out of them comes a winner, like any battle. There's always a winner and a loser. This winner has this horn, and he becomes great, verse 8 says, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. Now, we know from history now that this was actually Alexander the Great, who was the leader of the Greco or the Grecian Empire, and he conquered the known world. I said last week 33 years, but actually in 32 years, he died at the age of 32, but in 12 years, he conquered the known world. And the known world was actually not the whole world at the time, but it was the known conquerable world. It was the world full of kingdoms. And so as he went forth, he destroyed all these kingdoms. He put them under his feet, his authority. And when he did this, he got done. And history tells us, or tradition tells us, that actually he put his head in his hands and he wept because there was no other kingdoms to conquer. He was a conqueror. And when he had no longer had any kingdoms to put down, he was sad because that's what he did. He was this goat full of rage and fury, and he had this strong horn, and he conquered it all. And then he was like, okay, he kind of got what I would like to call destination sickness. He had goals for his life. He attained them, and then he had no more purpose. Unfortunately, in the day and age that we live in, and in the country that we live in, many times, uh, young, rich, rich young rulers are prepared to be these uh, young boys and girls that grow up and they're taught, you know, the, the American dream, which is what? our Two and a half kids and a white picket fence and a successful job and, and all the things that we all want for our kids, realistically. And they're not bad things. But if that's the only goal they have in life, when they reach it, Let me submit to you if they reach it, but when they reach it, they're gonna find themselves in the same place, in despair, broken, because uh, the world promised if you get the American dream, then your life will be fulfilled and then it's, you live till you die. But the problem is you arrive there and you go, life has to be more than just about this. Because if it is, I'm already there and I'm only thirty some years old. That's the destination I came to. Uh, so, so what do we do with this? Well, he comes to the point, comes to the end of himself, uh, because he is disillusioned with the fact that he's obtained what his goals were. It seems he has a drinking problem. He gets drunk for a whole night one night, and I think this was his custom. Just as Daniel's custom was to spend time with the Lord, this man found his custom was to party. And at the end of a drunken night, he breaks out with a fever and he dies at the age of 32 years old. Now, we don't, it doesn't say why he died. It doesn't say that it was because he was drinking. Uh, I would just submit to you that perhaps his lifestyle led to some problems. Uh, but whether that was the case or not, it seems that his kingdom, his rulership, comes to an end, and when he, this large horn, is broken, in place of him is four notable ones, that came up towards the four winds of heaven. The four winds of heaven kind of is symbolic for in every direction there were these four leaders. And what we know from history is that four generals in his kingdom rose up and became the four leaders of that kingdom. Uh, Cassander, Lysimachus, I'm probably butchering these, Seleucius, and Ptolemy. And now that's P-T-O, it, it's Ptolemy in my words, but, but Ptolemy. So these four leaders are raised up after Alexander the Great. Cassander takes on the region of Europe, modern-day Europe, which is Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus takes on Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, Seleucus takes on Asia, which is the eastern part of this particular empire. And Ptolemy takes on Egypt and North Africa. And so this rulership is all of a sudden divided into essentially four little provinces, if you will. So these four leaders arise from Alexander, and this becomes essentially the Roman Empire. But what we find out in verse 9 is out of these four rulers comes a little horn. Now, if you remember from the last chapter, in chapter 7, there was a little horn spoken of. And I would submit to you, this is not the same horn, because in chapter 7, verse 8, it says, I would, considering the horns, and he's talking about this fourth beast in chapter 7 that has 10 horns. But in chapter 8, this is a beast with four horns, or four rulers that come out of it, and out of those four horns comes a small one. But that's previous to this 10-horned beast talked about in chapter 7. So I submit to you that this is a different horn altogether. This is a different leader. So stick with me, because I know this is kind of convoluted and there's a lot to it. But interesting, in verse 9, it says, Out of the four comes a little horn. Not the same. So it seemingly, according to verse 9, it says, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So it comes to the south, toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. And I believe that this is actually speaking of a man that was risen out of Asia um, from the Seleucid Empire by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, if you know your Jewish history, which I did not, so I had to study it, Antiochus Epiphanes was a type of Antichrist. What I mean is he's, he's very similar to what's described of this little horn in chapter 7 that comes out of the ten horns. And Antiochus Epiphanes, essentially what he did in 175 BC, he attacked Jerusalem. Now it says that he went from the south toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. The glorious land refers to the promised land, the nation of Israel. So this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, attacks Jerusalem, he sets up an image of, him, of his God in the temple at the time, which was Jupiter. And when he sets up this image, he actually de- he desolates the temple. He desecrates it. He makes it unholy. He actually takes pig's blood, pig's broth, and he pours it on the holy instruments inside of the temple. Well, if you know anything about Jewish people, uh, that's unkosher. That's not Okay because they were not even supposed to eat swine. And if you remember the the time where Jesus cast the demon out of the man and cast it into a herd of swine, and they all ran into the, the Sea of Galilee, a lot of people are like, well, he just destroyed their livelihood. Well, these were Jewish people. They were not supposed to have pigs at all. These swine were forbidden. And so um, if you can imagine that, here we have uh, this pig blood poured out not just anywhere, but in the temple on the instruments of worship. And so this is a kind of a type of the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, the temple is profaned, and because of that, worship is stopped, and they they have a problem. They need to dedicate it again. But Antiochus Epiphanes has made it so they cannot, and he sends them out of the temple so that What we need to know is that (laughs) this man that sets himself up, let me get back to the text. It says there, out of one of them came a little horn, verse 9, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to this man, to the horn, to oppose the daily sacrifices. He cast the truth to the ground, and he did all this and prospered. So God, however you want to look at it, he either caused it or he allowed it to happen, and it says there in verse 12, because of transgression. The people of Israel had for a long time drawn near to God with their mouths, but in their hearts they were far from him. And if you remember what what happened is that because they were essentially forsaking mercy and taking care of the, the downtrodden, God was judging them. And God judges his people many times using ungodly people to wake them up out of their slumber. So he uses this wicked man, this idolatrous man. So he magnifies himself, he exalts himself, which is not good because even though God's using this man to judge the Israelites, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So even though he's being used by God to judge this nation, he himself will also be judged. Um, But he magnifies himself as high as the prince or the ruler or authority, the captain of the hosts. What's the host? What's a host? Is it somebody that like hosts and has, has you over to their house? No, a host is an angel. We sing a song that says the God of angel armies is always by my side. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the God of Sabaoth. He's the God of um, angel armies. He, he is the prince, the authority over these hosts of angels. He's the general, if you will. He's the captain. And so he raises himself up to the Lord of hosts, which is not a good idea. And then he puts himself in God's place in the temple. He sets himself up to be worshiped and he stopped the temple sacrifices. So in verse 12, he sets up an army to enforce this rule and to make sure that no one can continue to have sacrifices. Well, what's the problem with that? They can't sacrifice anymore. In the New Testament, we don't make sacrifices. As a matter of fact, the sacrifices that we make were actually the, the, the sacrifices of our lips, sacrifice of praise. And so, but in the Old Testament, without the shedding of blood, without sacrifice, there is no remission of sin. There's no remission of guilt. The only way that they can confess and be cleansed, or at least have their sins covered, was by killing an animal and sacrificing it in the temple. So because they can't make sacrifice, there's no forgiveness. There's no cleansing. There's no holiness. Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. So you see where I'm getting basically because they were disobedient to the Lord, God took away the ability for them to make sacrifices. And because of that, uh, God's no longer worshiped. So their sin led to them no longer being able to glorify the Lord. So sometimes we need to be thankful for what God's given us, because if we're not, he can take it from us. The same God that gave us the ability to worship can take that ability away. And so in this particular case— Worship is stopped, and um, the sanctuary is no longer able to be used. And actually, because of that, the truth is cast down by this ungodly man. And he was able to do all this, and it says he prospered. God, because of their disobedience, allowed their enemies to trample them and to have victory over them. God promised to give them victory as long as they were obedient in the land. But when they're disobedient, there's discipline. And so he loves them enough to discipline them like a loving father. So Daniel hears all this, and in verse 13 and 14, uh, he says, I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, he asked a question, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices or the stopping of the sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. How long will this last? And it says the answer, he said to me, for 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So for 2,300 days. Now I'm a math guy, so I see numbers and I go, well, how long is that? because I know know 365 days. I don't know what 2,300 days is. So I did my little division, and I came up with 6.3 something years, at least according to our calendar. So what does that mean? He says, for 2,300 days, sacrifices will be stopped. The transgression of desolation, he will still be in the temple, and the giving of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. They, they do not have the ability to go up there and worship because this man is in there. So the angel answers the other angel and says 2,300 days, which is six to seven years. So what does this mean? Well, in history, we learned that essentially there's this time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament where this event took place. Antiochus Epiphanes came in, desecrated the temple, and sacrifices were stopped for a certain amount of time. So the, de- the amount of time is told to us, the time of the desecration by Antiochus Epiphanes, till there was a man that was raised up and a group of people called the Maccabees. Have you guys ever heard of the Maccabees? The Maccabean revolt happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what they did was they raised up this group of people that essentially took over the temple again they fought and they drove out the syrian army and they rededicated the temple this rededication is mentioned in john chapter 10 verse 22 as the feast of dedication so if you go back to leviticus and you look at all the lists of feasts there's no list there's no feast of dedication even listed god didn't set this one up this one was set up and we know it as hanukkah because when the Maccabeans went in there to drive them out around six to seven years after this event, by Antiochus Epiphanes, they rededicated the temple to the Lord. They cleansed it. They went in and they set everything back up the way it was supposed to be. They got the idol out of there and they reset up the sacrificial system. So this is the feast that we call Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights. And in John chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus and his disciples are actually going up to the temple to celebrate this Feast of Lights, because at that time, and hopefully I'm getting this right, essentially when they went in there to cleanse the temple and rededicate it, they needed to burn the olive lamp, and it used olive oil to burn. Well, what it says in Jewish tradition is that they didn't have enough olive oil to burn, so while they were burning it, the Lord miraculously provided so that when they lit it, it stayed lit the entire eight days. And that's why you have the eight days of Hanukkah, where they give gifts to one another. The Jewish people still do to this day. Even Jewish believers that that actually don't even know why they're doing it. They just do it out of tradition. They're proclaiming that this thing actually happened. So all that. So what does this vision mean? Rather than reading my interpretation, let's go to verse 15. Verse 15, Then it happened when Daniel had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, reminding us we're back here in this same location that he's still receiving this vision, between the banks of the Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid. He was so afraid, it says, and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. So he's saying this hasn't happened yet. This is referring to a time that's going to be much later, some of your translations might say. But notice it doesn't say it refers to the end of time. It says it refers to the time of the end. That's an important distinction. So, Daniel is in a spot where he's seen this vision, and I believe he's greatly overwhelmed. And he wants to understand it. He doesn't just want to get it and move on with his day. He wants to understand. And I think if there's something that we can learn from Daniel in this passage is that sometimes God gives us things, He speaks to us in a certain way, and we don't know what He's trying to tell us. And because we live in a microwave age or an internet age where we Google everything, we don't spend a whole lot of time trying to understand things. We just, if we don't get it, we move on. And that's sad. Because I think God wants to speak to us and he wants us to understand what he says, but sometimes he gives us just enough to we'll dig a little deeper. And I think that because it says in verse 15, when Daniel had seen the vision, the result of seeing the vision is that he sought the meaning. He saw the vision, he wanted to understand what it meant, and so he dug deeper. He sought the meaning. Lord, what does this mean? And then it says, (laughs) when he had seen the vision, he was seeking the meaning. And as a result of him seeking the meaning, there stood before him one having the appearance of a man, and then an answer. A voice calls out and says, Gabriel. Now, who tells Gabriel what to do? Who's Gabriel? Does anybody know? This is the first mention of Gabriel, the angel. He has a specific name. We know a couple of them. One of them's Gabriel, another one's Michael. And so these angels have names and God knows them and he he tells them what to do. They're his messengers. Angels come and tell you what God has to say. So he came near where I stood and noticed this. As a result of this angel standing in Daniel's presence, Daniel is so afraid he falls to his face. This is not like when Judah's walking across the sanctuary floor and trips on his shoelace and you know, does a, you know, a face plant. This is Daniel so overwhelmed by this presence of this angelic being. This isn't precious moments, angels. This is like angel armies, angels, huge wings and whatever else. You, know, you read uh, Isaiah chapter six and you get the idea that these angels are not a force to be reckoned with. They are very real, they are very powerful, and they serve God. So don't be on the wrong side of the Lord, because these are the guys that he dispatches. So these angels, and this particular one, overwhelms him, and he falls on his face, and then the angel says to him, son of man, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. So there is a specific meaning for prophecy. We need to get that across. There are many people that read prophecy and they get all these crazy things from them. But I think the best commentary on prophecy and what God has to say is the Bible itself. God has one intended purpose. If you write a book or if you, if you send a text message, none of us write books. We probably send more text messages. When you send that, whether it's to your spouse or your kids, it has an intended meaning. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's not what you said, it's what you meant? Well, I meant what I said. You know, for me, I've texted my wife before and she goes, and then she responds and I'm like, what in the world is this? She doesn't understand what I mean because you lose some things sometimes in a text message. She didn't say, see my attitude. She didn't hear my, my te- you know, the, the way I intended it to be said. That's why face-to-face is always better unless you know, you can't hide your emotions, and sometimes it's worse. But my point is, sometimes we get misunderstood, and God gets misunderstood. We read a chapter in Daniel, maybe in our daily Bible reading, and we get something from it that was never intended to be there. But what I want to tell you is in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter says we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when excuse me for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory and said this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain, Mount of Transfiguration. Peter's referring to that. But then he goes on in verse 19 and says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, and this is my point of reading all this, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So in the Old Testament, when we see these prophecies, God has an intended purpose for them. It has an intended meaning. It doesn't mean whatever you feel like at the moment you're reading it. It means what God meant to say. And so Peter is re-emphasizing this. Prophetic word from the Lord has one intended message. And so Daniel, knowing that, seeks the meaning and he prays, "Lord, what does this mean?" and as a result of that he gets an answer. So he says, "This vision is for the end of t- the time of the end." Verse 18. As he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. He hasn't even lifted his head. He hears the voice, but his face is still to the ground. And he says, Excuse me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, perhaps he passed out, I don't know. It says but but he touched me and stood me upright. He lifted me up. Uh, <laughs> I love this because we just read about this prideful being that raises himself up and God's going to put him down, and yet Daniel is getting a vision about this. He collapses to the ground and then he's lifted up. He's exalted himself by this angel. So he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So I didn't just make that up. That's what God said in his word. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes, is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with the same amount of power. And so these four weaker kingdoms are raised up. And so he's telling them specifically what's going to happen, even naming the nations. That's why people argue that Daniel must have been written after the time of Daniel, and it's actually not true. But they say that because it's so true, if you don't believe in the miraculous, it's got to be a forgery. Right? But we know the God who knows the end from the beginning. God can predict things. And really, he's not predicting them. He's just telling us what he already knows is going to take place. And so, but what I want to point out is that the, the time of the end, and you read about it more in Revelation, is insane. These kingdoms are rising up. All of these tribulations and, and problems are happening unlike anything that anyone has ever seen. Actually, in Matthew chapter 24, this is what Jesus said. <clears throat> in verse 15, therefore, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Don't stay there. Get out of Dodge, because it's about to go down. So he says this, kind of affirming that Daniel was in fact a prophet. Otherwise, Jesus is a liar and nothing he said was true. But he says this, and I think it's important, why do all, why does the great tribulation come? Well, it says here in verse 19 I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. What is indignation? I was, studying in the, I was studying this passage and that word just stuck out to me. What is indignation? Like I get indignant if somebody misinterprets my text message. Like, oh my gosh. But that's not actually the meaning of indignation. A dignity and then indignity. So I was, I was kind of playing around with that and I looked up the word. Indignation in this particular phrase in this verse means froth at the mouth so it's not like oh i'm somebody misunderstood me and i'm indignant froth at the mouth is like i'm angry with passion so angry that i'm i it's affecting me physically um, it also means fury and what the strong's concordance says is that fury, especially when it pertains to God's displeasure with sin. So God's righteous indignation. He's froth, he's upset, he's so angry he can't see straight, but he's righteous about it. Picture with me, if you will, in John chapter 2, when Jesus comes into the temple and he flips over the tables of the money changers. You know, we always think about Jesus as this grace-filled merciful, not accounting sin towards those who are humble and contrite. And yet when he comes into the temple and they're making money off of worship and causing people to not want to come into worship, he is froth. He's angry. He flips tables over. If I started flipping tables over, most of you would think I need to go to the loony bin. Jesus came into the temple and flipped tables over well, that's not very politically correct. No, it's not. But it says of him in John chapter 2, when they saw this happen, John writing, he's writing after it took place, he's writing with twenty twenty vision. He says of this account that when he flipped the tables and all the disciples saw it, they remembered what the prophets had written. Zeal for his house had eaten Jesus up. Jesus was zealous for the house of God. It was meant to be a house of prayer, a house for all nations to come and to worship God. And because of their greediness and their sin, they made it a a den of robbers. They made it a place where people were getting robbed because they were trying to worship. And so God is not pleased with this, and zeal for the house had had eaten him up. There are some things that we should get mad about. That's what I want to say. Anger is not sin. The Bible says be angry and do not sin. Most of my anger is sin, uh, but there is a righteous anger. Just because you get angry and sin or you have sinful anger, don't shut it all off. Don't get this idea that if I'm mad, then I must be sinning. I need to not ever be mad. There are some things you should get mad about, and if you don't, uh, red flag there are some things you should get very angry about. Not to beat somebody up about it, but to try to do something to change it. God's given us emotions. He's big enough that he's, he, he can handle it. And he's small enough that he knows what our emotions are. He gave them to us for a reason. They're a gift. So what gets you angry? What makes you indignant? I'll confess to you, it's being misunderstood gets me pretty angry. Uh, That's horrible because that's a tiny thing. Someone doesn't understand me, I get it because I, I can be one person this moment and then a different person the next. But what gets you angry? And let me submit to you that what gets you angry will reveal what matters most to you. When people misunderstand me and I get very angry, it's because I'm all about me and I don't care about anybody else. And so I've made myself, in a, in a way, my own little God. If you transgress me, there can be problems. But maybe, maybe you, you deal with something different. What makes you angry shows what you value. God values the holiness of his name and his reputation. And he gets angry when people mar that reputation. And he will judge. And so. Um, Let's read on. Verse 23, he says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive, and he shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. Who's the prince of princes? But he shall be broken without human means he'll rise himself up against God. Ultimately, he'll be so prideful and build himself up and exalt himself so much that he'll make the biggest mistake that anybody can make. He'll pit himself against the prince of princes, against God himself. And so, the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true, therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. He was overwhelmed by this message from the Lord. How many times have you wanted to hear from the Lord, and then he's shown you something, and you're like, that's not what I was looking for. God reveals himself to us in measures that we can take. Daniel wanted to know what this meant, and as a result of it, he got what he asked for, and it caused him to faint and he was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So there's still much to be discussed about this, but what I want to tell you is that as I read this, I see God revealing his plan for Israel, God revealing what's going to happen because of transgression, God revealing that he will strike vengeance on his enemies, God revealing that his plans for Israel ultimately will be fulfilled with or without them. But he's going to fulfill his promises to Abraham. Daniel, I believe, was completely overwhelmed because he saw how his people would be affected by the wrath of God. He was overwhelmed. He was sickened by it because this nation that was called out to be a, a kingdom of priests and kings... Who were supposed to reveal the glory of God ended up being the example of judgment from God. and because of that, uh, they would be judged. So <clears throat> Daniel fainted, he was sick for days, and afterward he arose and went about the king's business. He went back to what he was doing. <clears throat> so I want to finish with a passage back in First Peter, not second Peter, but first Peter, chapter one. Verse 3. Peter writes, He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith. For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revealing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him. Yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. I submit to you that as Daniel is praying and as he's overwhelmed, his biggest prayer is, who's going to save us? this is all the stuff that's going to take place. Lord, how are you going to deliver us from all of this calamity? Who's going to deliver us? And in the meantime, as he's seeking that, God is already preparing the way for the answer to his prayer, which is going to be Jesus. God himself is going to fulfill this salvation. He's going to take the wrath, the froth, the indignation of God upon his own shoulders on behalf of anyone who would believe in him as their sacrifice for sins. And the nation of Israel should have understood that more than anybody, because as they have had their sacrificial system taken away, God's gonna provide one that actually not only would cover their sins, but cleanse them of all unrighteousness. And because of their unbelief for a time, we have the same opportunity to receive this. And so uh, while I hate that Daniel is upset, what we're going to find out in Daniel chapter 9 is it causes him to pray. It causes him to seek the will of God. It causes him to ask for answers, and it causes him to ask the Lord, Lord, will you please deliver us? Show us the way. And as a result of that, he's broken, and the Lord's going to answer and give him way more detail in chapter 9 than even in chapter 8. So let's pray. Father God, um, I must confess to you that many of these things, to me, are very difficult to understand. And I cannot imagine what Daniel was going through. He didn't have the lens of history to look through. He didn't have the New Testament. He was surrounded by people that were against you. And yet you spoke to him and gave him vision in the midst of a very dark time in the nation of Israel. And so, Father, as we... Are not in his same context we do live in a land that is dark that is in need of a word from you and we have been given the final word in jesus christ and so father when people are broken when people are in need of deliverance when they don't even realize it lord would you give us the ability and the willingness to build relationships with them to show them the meaning of life, to show them that life is more about the American dream, more than just about the American dream. It's not even about that at all. It's about glorifying you with these bodies and this breath and this life that you've given us. Lord, would you instill in us a new fervor and a new desire to fulfill and to know, and if we don't know, to do like Daniel did, to want to know and then to seek you and to ask for understanding. Lord, give us faith to sit still before you, to ask you the hard questions, and to wait for the answers. And Lord, would you help us as we receive those answers, help our unbelief, Lord. We believe, help our unbelief. Help us to be Jesus to people. And help us, Lord, to be obedient, to not bring shame to your name, to take full advantage of this grace that we've been shown. And Father, would you reveal Jesus to those that you've placed in our vicinity? Lord, we know you have a purpose for everything, and though we don't understand it, Lord, give us the ability just to be faithful anyway. Lord, we love you. I thank you for this opportunity, and I pray that you'd bless us as we go back to our mission field. In Jesus' name, amen.